Today we're looking at archaeology related to the beginning of the Bible for creation and the flood. Before we get to that, let's review a little bit of what we discussed last week. Last week we talked about how archaeologists decide how old something is. Before archaeologists can date any objects that they find, they first have to figure out the chronological sequence of the different sections of soil that they're digging through. What's that process called? That's right, stratigraphy. The analysis of the different sections of soil or the strata of soil is called stratigraphy. Before they can date anything, they have to figure out the sequence of the different layers of soil. Then, archaeologists use two kinds of dating. Relative dating and absolute dating. What's relative dating? Yeah, Eric. Yeah, essentially, it's cross-referencing. Relative dating is cross-referencing. They look for objects that are similar to or that there's more information about this type of object in the general body of archaeological knowledge. Have we found objects like this before? Were there any clues to the dates of that object? Then we can date this object relatively. What is one of the possible pitfalls of using relative dating? What might get you off course? That's very good, Bill. If you use something as a cross-reference, but you've wrongly interpreted that source, or it's a false source, it's fake, then your date's going to be wrong, and if you use that new date to cross-reference other objects, then you're going to create a system of wrong dates. Your whole system could be off if you wrongly interpret a cross-reference. What's a modern example of this flawed kind of relative dating? It's resulted in what? that we talked about last week. Chronology of Egypt. That's right, or the pyramids. They'll say certain things happen in the history of Egypt, but that's based off of wrong use of relative dating. And of course, it contradicts the Bible. The other type of dating is absolute dating. What's absolute dating? Really? Okay, so that's an example of it, but what is it? Absolute dating is when you use a physical property of the object to date it. You use some sort of scientific analysis based off of a physical property of the object, like Roy mentioned, like carbon dating. That's an example of absolute dating. But why is absolute dating not actually absolute? Because it's very interpretive. The math and the results involved in absolute dating are very open to interpretation and dependent on your assumptions. Now, I shared all of this with you last week regarding dating in archaeology, not to make you say, well, I guess we can't trust any of the dates that archaeologists say. Now, I don't want you to think that, but I do want you to simply see in your mind, whenever you see a, a date asserted by an archaeologist, there's a big asterisk next to it. Anything determined by archaeology or any historical science is ultimately unsure. It's ultimately uncertain. But as Christians, we have something that is certain. We have the scriptures. We have the Bible. We have God's word. We know that we can trust the Bible. So 
as we deal with archaeology and these other historical claims that are ultimately uncertain, we're always going to bring them in line with the Bible because the Bible is certain. We can build our understanding of history off of the Bible, ultimately not archaeology or historical analysis. It's like we talked about with the Answers Bible curriculum. If we want to understand the world and its history rightly, we must use the Bible like a set of glasses. All our conclusions about history or about anything, they must keep the truth of the Bible in mind. So, if we want to be a wise archaeological date setter, if we want to come up with good dates of archaeological objects and structures, we're going to use the Bible as part of our interpretation. That is the point that I wanted to make to you last week. We also talked briefly last week about um, one Babylonian creation myth. We'll review about that a little bit later, but... Any questions about dating in archaeology? Okay, as we get moving in today's class, I do have another handout for you. So if you didn't get a handout, please see Danny in the back. He has more of those. This is for the kids, but also for the adults, so you can use this to help you as, uh, as we go through today's information. We begin our survey of biblical archaeology now in earnest. We start with the Old Testament. There's actually more archaeological finds related to the Old Testament than the New Testament. That might surprise you. We might think that because the Old Old Testament happened longer ago, we're less likely to find pieces of information from that time than the New Testament. But it's actually the opposite. Why is that? Why do you think? Yeah, Ron. Right, that's very good, Rob. The Old Testament simply contains more. It's a longer period of time. It's also, well, I guess it's about the same area, or maybe you could even argue the New Testament's a little bit bigger geographically because it's the whole Mediterranean, but it's certainly a much longer period of time. The Old Testament covers from about 4,000 B.C. to about 400 B.C. with the prophet Malachi. So that's 3,600 years. The New Testament, by contrast, only covers about 100 years, 3 B.C. to about 95 A.D., so you're, you have a much larger search area of time, so you're going to have more objects to look at. So that's part of the reason why we find more in the Old Testament than the New Testament. There's another reason, though. Yeah. And could it be that a lot of civilizations in the New Testament are still around today, like a lot of the cities, but in the Old Testament, they may have been wiped out or covered in sand and preserved? That's a, that's a good insight that some of the things in the New Testament, some of those cities and those places, they were, they continued on. They never were totally destroyed. They, they were continued to be inhabited in the Middle Ages and so forth. And so we're not going to find their ruins buried in the dirt and preserved. I think that, that's part of it. But there is a difference between the, there is another difference between the Old Testament and New Testament times, and that is when it comes to the documents that they used, when it comes to the writing that they used, Old Testament The Old Testament time period used a lot more permanent forms of writing versus the New Testament. Many ancient artifacts that included writing were made of stone or clay, which lasts a long time. We have all sorts of clay and stone tablets tablets and monuments, and they survive for hundreds and thousands of years. In New Testament times, technological advances 
caused people to use more perishable materials for writing. They were much more frequently using papyrus or animal skins as their writing. It was more convenient, but those types of writing tend not to last unless they're carefully preserved. So that's another reason we find more artifacts in the Old Testament than the New Testament. Therefore, as we proceed in our survey in this class, we're going to be spending more time on the Old Testament than the New Testament. But we start at the most ancient era of time, creation and the flood. There's naturally, despite all I just said, what, despite all those things I just said to you about the Old Testament, there are very few archaeological remains from creation and the flood. That would be from about 4000 BC to about 2350 BC. Why do you think that is? For this specific period of time, we have almost nothing. Yes, yeah, Steve. Yes, it all comes down to the flood. It is the oldest period of time, so we might expect that some things didn't survive just because they were really old, but really it's because of the flood. Well, we cannot say with absolute certainty what happened during the flood. We've talked about some models related to the flood. We do know, according to the scriptures, it was a global cataclysm. It appears to have reshaped the face of the earth. The ground itself was upheaved and laid down again all over the world. Whatever human-made structures or objects that existed during that time were likely pulverized. They were completely destroyed in the flood, wiped away, giving us no record of humans in that time. But it doesn't mean that there's no archaeological information from this period. Because while the physical remains of mankind do not survive, the memory of those events has been passed down to man and to cultures all over the world. As we've already seen in part in our Answers Bible curriculum. Indeed, many cultures have ancient stories regarding creation, the flood, and even the confusion of languages at Babel. These memories are not perfect. They've been altered to suit the beliefs and purposes of various arising peoples, but they nonetheless give witness to the truthfulness of the details recorded in the Bible about these events, about creation and the flood. So that's what I want to explore with you today. I want to explore these creation and flood memories. And as we do so, I hope that the three purposes of biblical archaeology will stand out to you. We're going to see direct confirmation of some biblical details related in these myths, in these stories from these other nations. We'll also see plenty of context as to what Israel's neighbors believed about the beginning of the world. We'll also because we see this context, that should help prevent our misunderstanding the Bible's relationship to these myths. As I said to you before, some claim that the Bible borrowed stories about creation and the flood from their neighbors. When we see the context, when we actually look at it ourselves, that'll help prevent that misunderstanding. That'll correct. So Lord willing, today we're going to look at four pieces of archaeology, and then we're going to answer the question of, did the Bible borrow? Let's pray before we go further. Oh, great God, you are above all gods. You are the creator. You are the judge. You are the preserver of the world. Lord, I pray that this time would be edifying. Help me to explain well. Help them, help the people who are listening to be able to pay attention and understand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We begin again with creation. 
Last week, we read parts of one creation account, the Enuma Elish, and you see that on your worksheet listed there. It was a Babylonian creation myth written about 700 BC in cuneiform. Though archaeologists estimate the tale was first composed from about 1800 to 1600 BC, which would be, if that's correct, before the Bible, because the first five books of the Bible would be written around 1490 to 1450. That's when Israel set out from Egypt. And that's when Moses would have written the Pentateuch. So this could be earlier than even the Bible. And what were some similarities between the Bible's account of creation and the account presented in the Enuma Elish that we talked about last week? What was one similarity? Yes, Steve? Yeah, there's a part that talks about the separation of waters and a firm boundary after the creation process really gets going in the Enuma Elish. Marduk separates some waters above and waters below, and he says, put a guard up there in the above waters so that they don't exceed their position. That's similar to the Bible. God did make a firm distinction between the waters above and the waters below. What was another similarity? We also see that the beginning of the story starts with water. It says the waters were mingling together at the very beginning, probably fresh water and salt water. And the earth is there at the beginning. The earth and heavens are there at the beginning, but they're incomplete. They are begotten by, or begotten by two of the gods, but they're not fully formed yet. So that is a little similar to where the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, first creative act, and then it was formless and void. But what were some differences? What were some differences in the two accounts? Yeah, that's the most obvious one, right? There's a ton of gods in the Enuma Elish, but there's one god in the Bible. What's another difference? First creative act in the Bible is creation of, well, the heavens and the earth, but after that, What is it? Let there be light, right? And there was light. But the first creative act in the Enuma Elish is the gods. The gods are made. So if we accept, if we don't count the creation of the heavens and the earth, which would technically be the first creative act, the first thing that happens in either of these narratives is light on one hand and the gods, the lesser gods, on the other hand. How is the earth created in the Enuma Elish? Or how is it fully finished? Yeah, Khalif. Yeah, that's right. So if you remember, the whole universe is created out of violence. There's this bloodbath going, or there's this um, feud going on between the lesser gods and Tiamat, who's this one dragoness, goddess thing. And she wants revenge on the gods, wants to kill them all, but Marduk's like, no, I'll save all of you lesser gods. And he kills her, splits her body in half, and basically creates the earth and the heavens out of her body. So it's all about blood and violence. Even man is created out of the blood and bone of the gods. In the Bible, there's none of that. You just have God speaking. There's no violence, there's no killing, there's no death. So, some pretty profound differences. I think we've mentioned most of the big ones. Oh, 
Why are humans made in the Enuma Elish? Serve the gods, and how are they going to serve the gods? One of the things that Marduk specifically mentions, because the gods are complaining about this, we need some shrines. We need some temples. We need sacrifices. So that's another difference. Man is created for the gods to provide the sacrifices and the temples, but in the Bible, man is created to rule the earth and to have fellowship with God. God didn't need anything from man. He was just going to show himself generous to man. Anyway, so a number of those differences, you can note them on your sheet because they'll be a little bit important for what we talk about later on. So that's one creation myth. That's a Babylonian creation myth. It's similar to some other creation myths that you can also read about. I'll mention them a little bit later. But let's hear a creation myth from a different culture. This time, let's head to Egypt. This myth I want to share with you is called the Memphite theology. The Memphite theology. It comes from hieroglyphic writing inscribed into the Shabaka stone. Uh, You can't really see it there because of the glare, but there's this big old stone. It's got hieroglyphics on one side. It's got a whole bunch of lines going out from the center, kind of like the sun. But it was first found in the ruins of Memphis, ancient city of Memphis, in 1805 by George John, Earl of Spencer, a Brit. The stone currently resides in the British Museum in London. On the stone, a pharaoh named Shabaka claims to have found a deteriorating piece of papyrus that contained an important ancient religious text. He therefore had the text inscribed into this stone so that it could be preserved. Now, not all the hieroglyphics on the stone are still readable. The Shabaka stone was apparently later used, later repurposed as a millstone. So some of the hieroglyphics got destroyed. Grinding is not good for preserving inscriptions. What survives, however, is a basic presentation of the Egyptian view of creation. Also of theology, of rule, really, ultimately, the Egyptian worldview, the ancient Egyptian worldview. Archaeologists date the inscription on the stone to around 700 B.C., but they estimate the story was composed much earlier, perhaps around 1300 B.C. The text has four sections. The first part talks about how the pharaoh found the original text and then decided to put it on the stone. The second part talks about how upper and lower Egypt were united due to the actions of some of the gods. The fourth section talks about the city of Memphis and its relationship to the gods. But the third section is the one I want to talk to you about because it has to do with creation. The third section is all about the god of Memphis, Ptah. Yes, that's actually how you pronounce it. I looked it up. Ptah. Memphis served as the ancient Egyptian capital, at least for a time, of the the Egyptian kingdom. And Ptah would be the god of Memphis. Actually, Memphis literally means house of Ptah. So this god and this city are very closely connected. Let's read an excerpt from this third section of the Memphite theology, and then ask some questions about it. There took shape in the heart. There took shape on the tongue, the form of a tomb. That's the God of creation. For the very great one is Ptah, who gave life to all the gods and their cause, that is their spirits, through this heart and through this tongue in which Horus, god of the war and sky, had taken shape as Ptah, in which Thoth, god of wisdom, had taken shape as Ptah. Thus, heart and tongue rule over all the limbs in accordance with the teaching that it is in everybody and it is in every mouth 
of all gods, all men, all cattle, all creeping things, whatever lives, thinking whatever it wishes, and commanding whatever it wishes. Sight, hearing, breathing, they report to the heart, and it makes every understanding come forth. As to the tongue, it repeats what the heart has devised. Thus, all the gods were born, and his Aeneid, that is the set of nine chief gods, was completed. For every word of the god came about through what the heart devised and the tongue commanded. Okay, that was really easy to understand, wasn't it? Just kidding. Yes, this does sound a little bit trippy at first, but actually there's a fascinating argument here being made on behalf of Ptah. The argument is based off of an analogy between parts of the body. According to this text, which parts of the body are the most important? The heart and the tongue, right? Why? That's right. They rule over all the limbs. Whatever the heart devises, it causes the other limbs to do. And the tongue repeats what the heart devises. So the heart and the tongue are the most important parts of the body. Now, which god here is associated with the heart and the tongue? Ptah. He is the heart and tongue of the gods. The other gods then, because they obey and report to the heart and the tongue, just like the limbs of the body report to the heart and the tongue, they report to Ptah. So, follow the argument. Even though there are other gods, like Atum, who are responsible for various parts of creation, or who rule parts of the creation after it was created, the one who was and really is doing everything is whom? It's Ptah. Because he's the heart. The rest of the gods are the limbs. They do whatever he devises. He wills something, and the gods bring it to pass. He even willed for the gods to exist. Therefore, the author can rightly say in the first paragraph that Atum, Horus, and Thoth, they take shape as Ptah, because they are really just extensions of him. He's the chief god. He is their heart. Does this seem a little complicated? According to one interpretation of this text, it actually may be devilishly ingenious. Because you see, like Marduk, god of Babylon, Ptah was not always chief of the Egyptian pantheon. He was not always the most supreme god of Egypt. And if you're a pharaoh who wants to move the capital to Memphis, and you want the god of Memphis to become the chief god, but you don't want to cause a religious upheaval among the priests and worshippers of the previous supreme deity, what do you do? You have to somehow make the god that they worship the same as the god that you want them to worship. The Memphis theology accomplishes this by saying, when you worship a tomb or Horus, you're really worshiping Ptah, because Ptah is the chief god, and the other gods are just extensions of him. See that little subtle shift there? You can also say, anything that you give credit to your god for really belongs to Ptah, because Ptah is the heart, and the other gods are just the limbs. Really, Ptah really accomplishes everything. He created everything, and he sustains everything now. Let's read one more section of the Memphite theology. You'll see how this fits together with what we just said. Thus it is said of Ptah, he who made all and created the gods, and he is Tatanen, the mound of creation, 
who gave birth to the gods, and from whom everything came forth, foods, provisions, divine offerings, all good things. Thus, it is recognized and understood that he is the mightiest of the gods. Thus, Ptah was satisfied after he had made all things and all divine words. At this point, we can talk about some of the similarities and differences between this and Genesis. What are some of the similarities? Yeah, Magda. Yeah, we see that in the Bible as well. God looked at what he had made, and behold, it was very good. And he rested from all his works. God was satisfied with what he had made, in the same way that Ptah said to be satisfied with what he made. What's another similarity? Yeah, Eric. All right, so we have not just creation of part of the universe, but Ptah creates everything, ultimately. And that is also similar to the God of the Bible, the, the true God. God creates everything that was created. Any other similarities? There's at least one more. The mode of creation. How does Ptah create? If he's the heart, he just he just wills it, or he speaks it, which is the same way that the Bible talks about God creating, or similar to the way the Bible talks about God creating. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Whether that was spoken audibly, or whether it was just said in, in the mind of God, it was just his will, it came to be. God wills it, and it happens. In the same way, Ptah doesn't create by actually fashioning anything. He just wills it or speaks it. That's similar to the Bible. But what are some differences? What are some differences between this account and the account in Genesis? That's right. We have other gods here. And again, we have that's the first thing that Ptah does. We have many gods, and the first act of creation is Ptah willing other gods to come forth. What else is different? This is the whole creation account, by the way. According to Memphite theology. We are missing... Yes, we don't have... um, Well, I guess it's assumed here, but we don't have the specifics of how men were created. In fact, we don't have the specifics of how anything was created. We just know generally, yeah, Ptah did it, he just kind of willed it forward. But in the Bible, we get the sequence. He made this, he ordained it to do this, He made this, and this is how he made it, specifically when talking about men. So we don't see a creation sequence here. There's no other description of how creation actually happened. So those are some pretty big differences. There are other ancient Near Eastern myths that are related to creation that we don't have time to discuss. But if you like, you can look them up on your own. These include the Atrahasis epic, and the story of Adapa, and the Eridu Genesis. These are all Mesopotamian texts, and if you do read them, you'll notice that they sound very similar to the one that we read earlier, the Enuma Elish. So these would all been the creation legends of Israel's neighbors. By the way, that's Ptah, always portrayed as a mummy, holding something. Now, when speaking of the myths of Israel's early neighbors, one story that we must discuss is the Epic of Gilgamesh. This one you've probably heard of. You may even read part of it in high school. Or if you're not yet in high school, you probably will read part of it if you go to a public school. Gilgamesh Epic is an epic Mesopotamian poem that chronicles the feats of King Gilgamesh. And it has a number of surviving copies. It was actually very popular. We find it all over 
the Middle East. It has been called the first great piece of literature. It is one of the most ancient ones that we have discovered. The earliest tablets of this poem have been dated to around 1,800 B.C. So again, this is an old document. Though more standard versions of the story were found later, around 1,300 B.C. or 1,000 B.C. So it's a story that was ancient and it was continued for a long time. Let me give you a plot summary of the Gilgamesh epic. Gilgamesh begins the story as a mighty and lustful tyrant ruling the city of Uruk. The people cry out to the gods to send someone to rescue them from Gilgamesh's oppression. And the gods create a half-man, half-beast named Enkidu. And he's going to help the people. Enkidu and Gilgamesh fight. But Gilgamesh wins. And the two become friends. For the sake of glory, Enkidu and Gilgamesh go together to slay the guardian, this fierce guardian of a nearby forest, Humbaba. They, they kill him, and then later, they kill the bull of heaven, whom Ishtar, the goddess of love and war, sent against Uruk because Gilgamesh had spurned her advances. As punishment for killing the bull, the gods cause Enkidu to get sick and die, which traumatizes Gilgamesh, and he becomes very afraid of his own death. He then searches for eternal life, journeying to the land of the gods, to meet with Upnapishtim. I hope I say his name right. It's really hard to say. Upnapishtim. Survivor. He was the survivor of a previous great flood on the earth who had been granted immortality. Even though Gilgamesh eats with Upnapishtim, Gilgamesh hears that there is actually no way for man to gain eternal life. And so Gilgamesh returns home depressed. The story ends with Gilgamesh's death and the declaration that Gilgamesh's great name will last forever. Now, I've given you the summary. But there are two parts of the text I want to show you. First, on his way back home from Utnapishtim, Gilgamesh obtains a special plant. Let's read about this plant together. This is from section 6 of the Gilgamesh epic. Gilgamesh said to Ushanabi, the ferryman, Ushanabi is a companion he meets and journeys with, come here and see this marvelous plant. By its virtue, a man may win back all his former strength. I will take it to Uruk of the strong walls. There I will give it to the old man to eat. Its name shall be, The Old Men Are Young Again. And at last, I shall eat it myself and have back all my lost youth. So Gilgamesh returned to the gate through which he had come. Gilgamesh and Urshanabi went together. They traveled their twenty leagues, and then they broke their fast. After thirty leagues, they stopped for the night. Okay, so... What does this plant do that Gilgamesh has? It doesn't make you immortal, but it makes you young again. Yeah, It's a plant that makes you young again, something like the fountain of youth. Not quite immortality, but something like it, a very valuable find, a valuable prize. But let's read what happens next. Gilgamesh saw a well of cool water, and he went down and bathed. But deep in the pool there was lying a serpent. And the serpent sensed the sweetness of the flower. It rose out of the water and snatched it away. And immediately it sloughed its skin and returned to the well. Then Gilgamesh sat down and wept. The tears ran down his face, and he took the hands of Urshanabi. O oh, Urshanabi, was it for this that I toiled with my hands? Is it for this I have wrung out my heart's blood? 
For myself I have gained nothing, not I, but the beast of the earth has joy of it now. Already the stream has carried it twenty leagues back to the channels where I found it. I found a sign, and now I have lost it. Let us leave the boat, boat on the bank and go. So this snake steals, takes away from Gilgamesh the plant that would give him youth again, that would give him eternal youth or something like it. What does this sound like? Sounds a little bit like the fall, right? The fall. The fall with the serpent in the garden because through a plant, really there in the Bible, a tree, man lost eternal life. And he was barred from the tree of life. He no longer had access to youth or to immortality. There again, many differences between this account and the account of the fall in the Bible. It's a flower versus a tree of life. It's a dis- deceiving serpent rather than a stealing serpent. There's sin in the Bible. There's no sin here of Gilgamesh. But this loss of man's immortality, it's a detail that shows up in more than one ancient text. It shows up here in the Gilgamesh epic, but it also shows up in the story of Adapa, where a man, based on the advice of one of the gods, unwittingly denies himself immortality. Out of ignorance or something like deception, man loses immortality. It's that memory. And memory has remained. So that's one part of the epic I wanted to show you. But there's a more famous part, the other part that I want to show you, to, or show you, and it's the account of the flood. There are a number of parts of this account I want to show you. Utnapashtim, he's a survivor of the flood. He's talking with Gilgamesh in section 5. Let's read a little bit of what he says. This is Utnapashtim. In those days, the world teemed, the people multiplied, the world bellowed like a wild bull, And the great god was aroused by the clamor. Enlil heard the clamor. And he said to the gods in council, The uproar of mankind is intolerable, and sleep is no longer possible by reason of the babel. So the gods agreed to exterminate mankind. Enlil did this, but Ea, god of water and crafts, because of his oath, warned me in a dream. He whispered their words to my house of reeds. Reed house, reed house, wall, oh wall, hearken, reed house, wall, reflect, O man of Shurapak, son of Ubaratutu, tear down your house and build a boat. Abandon possessions and look for life. Despise worldly goods and save your soul alive. Tear down your house, I say, and build a boat. These are the measurements of the bark as you shall build her. Let her beam equal her length. Let her deck be roofed like the vault that covers the abyss. Then take up into the boat the seed of all living creatures. Okay, according to this part of the account, who sends the flood on the earth? Who was it? Noah doesn't send the flood. I hear whispers. Can someone raise your hand and tell me? Yeah, Enlil, together with the other gods. Enlil gets annoyed. He says, guys, let's do this. And they say, okay, we will. But why are they going to kill mankind? They're too noisy, and gods can't sleep. So loud out there. Kill them all. Well, at Napishtim, is told, after Ea, one of the other gods, warns at Napishtim, he's told many of the same things that Noah is told in Genesis. Build a boat. 
build it with specific dimensions, and take into it, take into it all kinds of living creatures. There follows in the text a description of the building. Ednapishtim makes the boat a square, really a cube, something like a cube. It's 140 cubits on each side. The boat has seven decks, and it's covered with pitch inside and out. Ednapishtim takes on board the boat his gold, his family, his kin, and wild and tame beasts, and some craftsmen. Bring them all on the boat. Then the flood comes. Let's look at the description of the flood. When the first light of dawn, with the first light of dawn, a black cloud came from the horizon. It thundered within where Adad, lord of the storm, was riding. In front, over hill and plain, Shulat and Hanish, heralds of the storm, led on. Then the gods of the abyss rose up. Nergal pulled out the dams of the nether waters. Ninurta, the warlord, threw down the dikes. And the seven judges of hell, the Unanaki, raised their torches, lighting the land with their livid flame. A stupor of despair went up to heaven when the gods of the storm turned daylight to darkness, when he smashed the land like a cup. One whole day the tempest raged, gathering fury as it went. It poured over the people like the tides of battle. A man could not see his brother nor the people be seen from heaven. Even the gods were terrified at the flood. They fled to the highest heaven, the firmament of On. They crouched against the walls, cowering like curs. Then Ishtar, the sweet-voiced queen of heaven, cried out like a woman in travail, Alas, the days, or the days of old are turned to dust because I commanded evil. Why did I command thus evil in the council of all the gods? I commanded wars to destroy the people, but are they not my people? For I brought them forth. Now, like the spawn of fish, they float in the ocean. The great gods of heaven and of hell wept. They covered their mouths. Okay, according to these two paragraphs, from where did the waters of the flood come? Yeah, Eric. That's right, above and below, right? We have the storm and the rain coming upon mankind, but also nether waters. They're breaking up of dams and dikes. So water is also coming from below. And when this deluge comes upon men, how do the gods react? They're afraid. And what else? They're definitely scared. They're afraid. They're scared. What else? They are sad. They regret what they did. They even call it evil. Ishtar refers to her wish to destroy mankind as evil. If the gods are doing evil, then what does that make man in the flood? He is just a victim. He's an innocent victim. Those cruel gods, they sent the flood on us. They did evil to us. The flood lasts for seven days, covers the earth. On the seventh day, the flood begins to subside, and Napishtim notices a mountain in the distance. The boat runs aground on the mountain and stays there for seven more days. Then we read the following. When the seventh day dawned, I loosed a dove and let her go. She flew away, but finding no resting place, she returned. Then I loosed a swallow, and she flew away, but finding no resting place, she returned. I loosed a raven. She saw that the waters had retreated. She ate, she flew around, she cawed, and she did not come back. Then I threw everything open to the four winds. I made a sacrifice and poured out a libation on the mountaintop. 
Seven, and again seven cauldrons I set up on their stands. I heaped up wood and cane and cedar and myrtle. When the gods smelled the sweet savor, they gathered like flies over the sacrifice. Then at last, Ishtar also came. She lifted her necklace with the jewels of heaven that once Anu had made to please her. O you gods here present, by the lapis lazuli round my neck, I shall remember these days as I remember the jewels of my throat. These last days I shall not forget. Let all the gods gather around the sacrifice, except Enlil. He shall not approach this offering, for without reflection he brought the flood. He consigned my people to destruction. Okay, again, we see some, probably notice, some striking parallels to Genesis here. What are some of the parallels? Yeah, Eric. That's right, the sending out of the birds to see if the land is dry. In fact, two of the same bird types are mentioned. Dove, raven. I don't know how Swallow got in there, but he did. We've got the dove and the raven. What else is similar? Yeah, this guy does too. Yeah, Noah, it's when he comes out of the ark, he offers a sacrifice, and we see Napashtim doing the same thing, a sacrifice at the end of the flood to please the gods. What else is similar? Eric. Yep, landing on the mountain. They run aground on the mountain. That's similar. What else? Notice that there's a declaration from Ishtar here. A declaration of remembrance. I'll remember this. And there's no promise associated with that, that. No promise of a rainbow or promise not to flood the earth again. But there is a promise of remembrance. That is similar to what we also see in the Bible. God says, I'm going to remember you, Noah. I'm going to remember the covenant that I make with you. Those are similar. But what are the differences? What are some differences between these accounts? Right, the flood is a lot shorter in this one. It's basically 14 days. What else? Boat dimensions are different. We have something that's like a square. The bird sequence is different. The outcome is also altered for the birds that he sent out. There's no olive branch here. The gods swarm around the sacrifice like flies, which I think is a really gross image. No rainbow. No promise to protect the world from a future global flood. And in this account, there's a denunciation of the one who sent the flood. Enlil, he's not allowed to come near the sacrifice because he did evil in commanding a flood. That's very different from what the Bible says. Other Mesopotamian flood myths record similar stories. The gods in these other stories, they become upset about the noise that humanity is making. They send plagues, they send the flood. A god intervenes to save one man and his family who gets in a boat. After the flood comes, the gods are sorry that they sent the destruction. And you can read more about those myths in those two texts I mentioned already, the Atraasis epic and the Eridu Genesis. Oh, if you're wondering how Anapishtim became immortal, it's because the gods felt bad about what they did. Oh, we kind of made a mistake here to make up for it. You and your wife can be immortal. There's one other source that has to do with the flood that I want to show you today. 
There's a noticeable change in the scriptures, according to the scriptures, after the flood when it comes to mankind. It's obvious whenever we look at the genealogies. What is the big change in man after the flood? Say that again, George. That's right. The length of their days, their lifespans, it changes. It decreases. Especially as the further away you get from the flood, the lifespans get lower and lower. We find something fascinating related to this in the Sumerian king list. Sumerian king list. This is another document that has multiple copies. About seven copies of this list have been found by archaeologists. The oldest of the copies is dated around 2000 B.C., while the earliest is dated around 165 B.C. So again, this is a long-preserved document. As we'll see in a moment, it sounds a little bit like the history of Manetho that we examined last week. It lists Sumerian dynasties and how long they ruled. Part of this list contains names of rulers that appear in other historical documents. But part of this list also seems mythological. Let's take a look at two sections. Here's the first one. Some tricky names here, but I'll do my best. After the kingship descended from heaven, the kingship was an Eridug. In Eridug, Alulim became king. He ruled for 28,800 years. Alaljar ruled for 36,000 years. Two kings, they ruled for 64,800 years. Then Eridug fell, and the kingship was taken to Bad-Tabira. And Bad-Tabira, Enmunlu-Ana ruled for 43,200 years. And Mengal-Ana ruled for 28,800 years. The Muzid, the shepherd, ruled for 36,000 years. Three kings, they ruled for 108,000 years. Then Bad-Tabira fell, and the kingship was taken to Larek. And Larek, Enzipad-Zid-Ana ruled for 28,800 years. One king, he ruled for 28,800 years. Then Larek fell. And the kingship was taken to Zimber. And Zimber and Mendorana became king. He ruled for 21,000 years. One king, he ruled for 21,000 years. Then Zimber fell, and the kingship was taken to Kurapag. And Kurapag, Obaratutu became king. He ruled for 18,600 years. One king, he ruled for 18,600 years. In five cities, eight kings, they ruled for 241,200 years. Then the flood swept over. Okay. This chronology obviously does not fit with the Bible. 240,000 years? I don't think so. But notice the mention of a flood. It says, then the flood swept over. And now, listen to what comes next in the text. After the flood had swept over, and the kingship had descended from heaven, the kingship was in Kish. I believe it's pronounced Kish. In Kish, Juser became king, who ruled for 1,200 years. Kulasi Nabel ruled for 960 years. Nanjalisalisma ruled for 670 years. And Taraana ruled for 420 years, three months, three and a half days. Babram ruled for 300 years. Puanam ruled for 840 years. So the obvious striking similarity between this and the Bible is the decrease in the lifespans immediately after the flood. Lifespans begin to decrease after the flood. Now again, there are a ton of details here that don't line up with the Bible. But there is a true memory here. There's a true detail here. This idea of lifespans decreasing after the flood, that is true. And it is just as the Bible says. Now when speaking of flood archaeology, you might be surprised that I haven't yet mentioned Noah's Ark. The rest of human civilization may have been swept away in the flood, but the ark survived. It was lodged on top of a mountain. Maybe the ark is still out there. 
could the ark still exist? It's theoretically possible. The ark, if the ark were high enough on a mountain and surrounded by the right conditions so that the wood didn't deteriorate, it could still be out there. You know what that means. Cue the Indiana Jones music. Da, 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 da. Lots of people have therefore searched for the ark around modern Mount Ararat. A number of people have claimed to have seen the ark on the mountain partially covered by snow or a glacier, or they claim to have found wood from the ark on Mount Ararat. But so far, the ark has not been found. In fact, if you go to the Answers in Genesis website and look up Noah's Ark Found, you'll find easily a dozen articles from the last 20 years dealing with claims that the ark has been found by some person or another in Turkey. Each time, however, the claim turns out to be false or unverifiable. Can't tell if it's true or not. Of course, that doesn't stop people from doing it. If you want to get international attention as an archaeologist, there's probably no better way to do that than to claim you found the ark or pieces of Noah's Ark. If the ark really does exist, it will be very difficult to find. Why? Well, a number of reasons. Many have searched for the ark on Mount Ararat, but it's a big old mountain. It's not easy to get to, it's not very safe, and it's very large. It's a big search area. However, Mount Ararat might be the wrong mountain to look, look at in the first place. According to Dr. Jason Snelling from Answers in Genesis, Mount Ararat appears to be a mountain formed by volcanic activity after the flood, which is problematic for flood discoveries for two reasons. One, it means that the mountain probably didn't exist for the ark to land on at the end of the flood. And two, if it did exist, it would have been very dangerous. It would have been very dangerous as it was an active volcano. And if Noah and company were not killed by the volcano, subsequent volcanic activity would likely have destroyed any evidence of the ark. Lava would have poured over the ark, burning it, and when the lava cooled, whatever pieces of the ark weren't incinerated would be buried under volcanic rock. Furthermore, Genesis 8.4 says, it doesn't say that the ark landed on Mount Ararat, but on the mountains of Ararat meaning the ark could have landed anywhere in the mountain chain in which Ararat was a part. What does that mean for archaeology? It means all the challenges I just mentioned get multiplied a thousandfold. That is a huge, dangerous, inaccessible search area. If the ark does exist, it will be very, very hard to find. Now, I admit, it would be cool, though, if we found it. It would be an awesome, direct confirmation of Scripture. Maybe someday our technology will advance enough so that we can thoroughly and safely search the mountain chain of Ararat and even find the ark. But as you know, and it's worth remembering, even if the ark is found, people will still not believe the Bible is true. Why not? I mean, isn't that such an obvious confirmation of the Bible? It's sin, right? It's the heart of man. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 16.31. He's talking there about the rich man and Lazarus, rich man in hell. The rich man is speaking to Abraham. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to go tell his brothers, don't go to hell. 
Repent, turn to the Lord. But Abraham says back, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that is the scriptures, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Even if we find the ark, people will not be persuaded. Now perhaps today's class has made you feel a little bit nervous. You're seeing some of the similarities between the Bible's accounts of creation and the Bible's accounts of the flood and the accounts of these other ancient cultures. And you're wondering, could it really be true what they say? Did the Bible borrow its origin stories from its neighbors? Did the Israelites simply repackage Sumerian and Egyptian myths and slap monotheism on top of it? Is that possible? It is the claim of many today. But we can confidently say, no, Moses and the Israelites did not do that. Why can we say that? Why can we confidently say the Bible did not borrow from the myths of its neighbors? There's that, first of all. The Bible is God's word, and it's true. We know that. We've come to know that. We don't need archaeology to show us that. If you're a Christian, you've encountered the reality of God in the Bible. The Bible proves itself. The Bible says that, if, and therefore, if the Bible says that's the way something happened, that's the way it really happened. The Bible is right. The borrow cannot borrow if the Bible is really that way, which it is. The Bible proves itself. You encounter reality when you read the Bible. So there's that. But why else? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, that's a little bit of what we're attached to the truth that we just mentioned. But to repeat your comment, Rob, because we know the Bible is true and we see these other things in these other accounts like polytheism, we know they're untrue. Obviously, we're not going to assume that the Bible borrowed from them. But I think you're getting to another point that needs to be made is that, yes, there are similarities between the Bible and these other accounts, but there also are a ton of differences. If you've been tracking on your handout today, you should have noticed there's a lot of differences between the details of the Bible and the details of these other accounts. We have one God versus many gods. First creation of light versus first creation of the gods. A serpent deceives with sin versus a serpent steals away a special plant. There's so many differences between these accounts people often overemphasize the similarities and don't pay attention to the differences. And it's not even just the little details. There are fundamental differences in worldview evident between the Bible and these other accounts. This is particularly obvious when it comes to the Babylonian stories, but also applies in some ways with the Egyptian creation myth. How do the Sumerian myth betray the gods? What kind of beings are they? Fickle, yeah? How else can we describe them? Magda. They're capable of evil. They've done it, according to these myths. They're needy. They're cranky. They make mistakes. They're limited in power. Can the Bible be any more different than that? 
And we have all those things with the Babylonian gods, but the Bible asserts one God with total sufficiency, total righteousness, and total control. I think, uh, Stan, were you about to say something? Yeah, it's another great observation. These gods show fear. They become afraid. Also, how do the Sumerian myths betray man? The gods are cranky, evil, mistaking. What's man? He's a victim. I mean, he's not perfect, but he's a victim. Poor, poor man. Immortality was taken away from him by chance and by deception. The flood was brought on by gods who wanted more sleep. Oh, poor man. How does the Bible portray man, particularly after the fall? What's that, Steve? Responsible. Responsible. And very evil. Remember the flood? The description of man there? Evil from his youth. His thoughts are constantly evil. That's such a difference in a worldview. Moreover, the direction of the two origin accounts in terms of how time moves is totally different. In the Bible, the world begins perfectly, but then gets much, much worse. What about in the Sumerian epics? The world begins... That's right. It begins as a mess. It's imperfect. Then a whole bunch of violence happens, and then things get better. Now we've got some order. That's what we saw in the Enuma Elish. You've got an unformed world with violent, vengeful gods. There's war, there's death, and out of the chaos, order appears. Finally, the gods establish a new hierarchy. Yay! They create man to serve the gods according to the needs of the gods. Now things are set the way they need to be. The Bible proclaims just the opposite. Everything was set perfectly, and then man rebelled, and the world was cursed. And things just get worse and worse over time. One other observation. When myths are passed down, there's a noticeable aspect of transmission. A myth becomes more mythological. It becomes more elaborate. It becomes less believable. This is in the normal direction of myths. But if the Bible came from these myths, then it doesn't make sense because the Bible is less mythological. And more realistic. Myths tend to get more elaborate and less realistic, not simpler and more realistic over time, yet the Bible does just that. If the Bible was borrowed and came later, then why is the account less mythological? Why is it simpler? Myths just don't work that way. So, well, I'll say one more thing and then a final conclusion. Some have argued that yes, The Bible was written in in relation to the pagan neighbors, but not from a borrowing sense, but as a polemic, as an attack against the beliefs of those other neighbors. That is, the Israelites were saying, Moses was saying, God was saying when he wrote the scriptures, this is the argument, you think the flood happened due to the noise of men and the crankiness of the gods? Let me emphasize the real reason over and over again in the text of the Bible. It was because of the wickedness of man. And it was because of the great holiness of God. God was grieved, not at noise, but at violence. The very violence that you celebrate in your legends. So it's possible 
the Bible is written, or that those accounts were written with, as partly a polemic. But really, the better explanation for the similarities between the Bible's account and the myths of its neighbors has to do with one fact. The Bible really happened. The events of the Bible really happened. Of course there will be similarities between what the Bible presents and the mythologized history of the other nations because those myths at their core are based off of real history that they remembered. They are distorted memories of what really happened. Because the Bible is true, we expect that that would happen, that those memories would last and be distorted. We expect that men would pass on their descendants truths like, son, there was a time when man had access to immortality, but then he lost it. Or, son, there was a time when a great flood destroyed all men on earth. Those truths were passed down because they really happened. This is the presupposition that the skeptics just never consider. Maybe the reason these myths sound like they, what's written in the Bible is because what the Bible says actually is true. We praise God that his word is true, that he's not like the gods of the nations, that he has called us to be a people for himself out of the goodness of his heart, out of desire to show his greatness to us, not out of some need for relationship or service. And there is no God like God. That's it for today. Next week, talk about Babel, dispersion of the peoples, and the time of the patriarchs. We're out of time, so if you have questions or comments, please see me afterwards. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are God. You rule, you reign. Oh, God. Lord, it's just like what your scriptures say. We're talking about those who reject the truth. They create a God in their own image. And we see that with these ancient cultures, and we see that today. People make you out to be like them. But, God, you are not like us. You are not like a man. You are not imperfect. You are not needy. You are great. Your love and kindness is abounding. And your holiness is too much to bear. We thank you that you've made a way for us in Christ. That unlike Gilgamesh, who despaired that there was no way to gain eternal life, you actually say the opposite. There is a way, and it is by repentance and belief in you. God, I pray that each person here listening will have done that, will do that, and Lord, that they would rejoice in what you accomplish on their behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.